Welcome to the sermon podcast of Redeemer Church. Redeemer Church is located in Fate, Texas, and her mission is to share the gospel, shape disciples, and send missionaries into the surrounding communities and across the globe. We hope that this week's message will bring glory to God by building you up and resulting in you looking more and more like Jesus himself. As everybody else is getting seated, I would like to invite my family to come join me up here. Today is the first Sunday of Advent, and so we have the pleasure of reading and lighting the hope candle. Jace is going to read Isaiah 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Thank you, Ashley and Jace. All right, one last thing for me, too, actually. If you look around in the seats around you, there is a visitor slash prayer card. Uh, if you are a first-time visitor and would like to learn more about Redeemer Church and what we do here, what we believe, and what our ministries are, you can fill that out. Somebody from the church team will contact you. Uh, on the back side, there is prayer requests, and we have a team that checks these weekly and they pray over whatever the needs are. Um, so those are probably every third seat throughout here. Um, and lastly, the moment that all you kids and your parents have been waiting very patiently for, if you are in the primary class, I'm going to release you guys to go back to Miss LaQuandra. And if you are in the elementary class, now is the time for you guys to go join Miss Ashley back there. Stanley? Thanks, Jim. For as he makes his way to the kids' classroom, uh, so I appreciate you, Jim, uh, for leading those uh, parts of the service for us. Um, for those that don't know me, my name is Stanley John. I serve as an elder here. Uh, one piece that I want to bring your attention to, you'll, if you've kept in t um, or seen the emails, search emails, you've heard about the next five anniversary giving. We've been doing that through the month of November, through the last few weeks. But if you've missed service or not heard of it, I just want to bring your attention to it. That's why you're seeing these booklets. It um, has all the information of 
uh, what, God, uh, what we think God is calling us to uh, participate in here as we kind of look forward to and walk towards a per- more permanent home here in faith. So uh, if you have questions about that, feel free to talk to me or one of the elders, but uh, the booklet has all the information. And if you're looking to give, feel free to fill out one of the, the cards in there and drop it in the um, kiosk back there and we'll uh, follow up on it. All right. Let me say a quick word of prayer before we jump into the Word. Jesus, we thank you this morning again as we walk into this Advent season and celebrate you and what you've done for us. We pray this morning that as we come out of a week of Thanksgiving and um, look forward to your birth and celebrating that, give us the grace to slow down, to pause, to reflect, and to meditate on on the, uh, on the sacrifice that you made for us, on the um, act of the incarnation of you taking on flesh so that you could be with us. You did not just send help, but you came to be with us, and that is uh, something that we can meditate on and reflect on as we uh, move towards the Advent season. We pray for the, uh, the word this morning that will go forth that it will accomplish what it's sent out for. I pray that you would bless uh, the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Um, so I think if you've, if you've already not caught on, we are in Advent season officially, and so um, we'll be kicking off our Advent sermon series this morning as we kind of look forward to Christmas in a few weeks. And so um, <clears throat> as we... Uh, kind of come out of, you know, Thanksgiving food comas and, you know, work towards the Christmas food uh, coma, I think it's uh, important, I think, for us as believers to reflect on what it means to be in Advent season. Uh, So if you're not familiar, um, Advent essentially it's the time between, uh, you know, the weeks leading up to Christmas uh, where the church calendar is dedicated to anticipate this arrival or the advent of our Messiah, Jesus uh, he was the long-awaited Messiah. He was the king that uh, Israel was waiting for and that we uh, can look back to. Uh, the, so the church has kind of historically set this time uh, aside to uh, remember and reflect this, this truth and to fix our focus on this hope-filled arrival of Jesus. You know, as we um, do that, I think it's important um, to... So this candle is leaning this way, which I'm just going to set up so that we don't have to burn the stage down. Um, as we uh, look forward to it, I think it's uh, important to kind of uh, keep in mind, um, this wasn't true where I, where I grew up outside America, but being in America, I do notice that uh, post-Halloween, I think, you know, there's this huge rush towards Thanksgiving and Christmas, and there's, you know, Black Friday and Cyber Monday and Giving Tuesday and uh, what, I'm not sure what else is there between now and Christmas, but there's all the hustle and bustle uh, of all the commercial aspects of the Christmas season, you know, and I think sometimes it, we can confuse uh, the Advent season for, you know, time to shop for Christmas. I think we get all of those mixed up together, and so uh, I think it's, it's um, the, the reason we do this uh, sermon series and also kind of uh, celebrate the Advent season is to kind of reflect and pause uh, and to think about what is it this season means for us as believers. So I would encourage you, if you guys don't have a practice at your home, 
to uh, celebrate the Advent, whether it's reading through a um, devotional or reading through a plan or reading through passages, that I would uh, highly recommend that you take some time to uh, do that, whether it's weekly or daily leading up to Christmas. I think it's a great uh, uh, discipline for us to practice and to not only just reflect, but to rehash the truths that the incarnation represents for us. And so um, I think it's also good for our kids as they get ready. I don't know about your kids, but my kids uh, are focused on Christmas lists and what they're going to get and what it is and, and oh yeah, and Jesus too. But um, So I think it's good also for our kids to reinforce what it means to celebrate Christmas beyond the gifts and the shopping and the cultural aspects of it. So uh, I just want to kind of uh, set that up as we look, into, uh, look at our passage this morning. For our time together, we're going to be looking at Galatians chapter 4. We're going to look at the first seven verses in Galatians chapter 4. And so I want us to uh, read that real quick before we uh, kind of jump in um, and dive into what God has to speak to us. So Galatians 4 and verse 1, Paul writes, I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything but he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has, this, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. So Galatians is not a you know, typically a, an Advent passage, at least you know, it's not very common, but um, I think it's, this is uh, an important passage for us to reflect on for a couple of reasons. But before we jump into that, I think as a way of background to orient us where we are in Galatians chapter 4, so Paul here is uh, writing to the church uh, in Galatia and kind of the surrounding churches, and primarily addressing the Judaizers, uh, and these were people that were uh, focused or or in, uh, wanting to enforce the Jewish practices and customs on the whole church, including the Gentiles that were that were joining the church. So the church was growing. There were a lot of Gentiles uh, joining the church, and the Judaizers wanted to uh, keep the requirements that they had practiced, the requirements that came out of the law. Uh, and wanted the Gentile believers to uh, enforce the same uh, criteria and to observe the same practices to be called the people of God. They were like, no, you can't just show up and say you're going to be the people of God and say you trust in Jesus. You have to do these additional things. And so, as you can imagine, Paul is very frustrated as he's writing this letter and uh, essentially lays out this argument about what it means to go back to the law when Jesus has come. So what does it mean? What does it mean to go to something as inferior as the law now that Jesus has come? So kind of uh, if you think about where the Jewish, uh, the Mosaic system or the Mosaic covenant has come from, uh, oh, sorry, the Sinai covenant, we see how God made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter, starting in Genesis chapter 12, we read about Abraham's story, um, and we looked at this a few months ago, but uh, you know, God makes a promise with Abraham, and it says, that through Abraham's family or his promised son, that God would bring the blessings of salvation to the world. Um, and so Abraham tries to 
uh, his own methods, right? He tries to save his life by give, uh, you know, telling on his wife or calling his wife a sister and you know, having a, a child with his servant. He tries all these things, but eventually uh, you know, God is able to get Abraham to wait and be patient and to trust God and his promises. And so God eventually gives Abraham a son, Isaac, uh, which is the son of promise. And in, uh, through Isaac, um, Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau, and God blesses both of them. But God says, Jacob is who I'm going to pick to bring this blessing um, to the world. And so we read about Jacob and his 12 sons and the tribes, 12 tribes that come out of the 12 sons, uh, and they end up in uh, Egypt. And the story is familiar. Um, they are in slavery uh, in Egypt for 400 years. God hears a cry and sends Moses to deliver them. He, he the, destroys Pharaoh, helps them cross the Red Sea, sustains them through the wilderness, brings them to Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, God establishes a, co a covenant with his people there. And he says, now that I have rescued you from slavery, now that I have brought you out and sustained you through the wilderness, be my people. And uh, the way you're going to show or be my people is to uh, ob obey the commandments and the laws that I'm going to put in place. And so this is where we get the 613 laws from the Mosaic um, uh, laws and then the Ten Commandments and everything that follows. So essentially God gives them a whole system to live by uh, and God asks them to uh, live by these uh, laws and these regulations so that they, the world will know that these people have been separated and dedicated to God. And so that's essentially what we see here. And so uh, that's the background that the Judaizers are uh, looking at. Uh, that's the background they're coming from. And circumcision was one aspect of this where the covenant people or the males were marked by, this, uh, by the covenant agreement through circumcision. But Paul says, now that Christ has come and died for us, uh, some of the, these things are not required. And so Paul is trying to get his readers to grasp what does it mean to have their standing before God now that Christ has come. And so he essentially in this first few verses reminds them that the laws and the sacrificial system and the mark of the circumcision were all temporary. There were temporary guardrails and guardians and managers that were put in place, but they were not God's final plan. They, weren't, they were not God's ultimate plan. And so my first point this morning is, uh, um, is that ch uh, is, you'll see it back on the screen, is children who are not sons are like slaves. Children who are not sons are like slaves. I don't know about you, but my wife keeps track of all of the dates that led up to our wedding date. So, you know, when we first met, when we started dating, and all, so many dates between, between then and our engagement date, et cetera, and then our wedding date. And so um, when we got married, all those other dates went away in my head. It's like, this is the only date that matters. But she keeps track of all of them. Um, I have to say, now that a few years into marriage, even the wedding date is kind of getting blurry because... <laughs> right, um, so as, as we pick up the... Uh, I think that's what Paul is trying to communicate here to the Judaizers, uh, that now that Christ has come, all of these temporary measures and uh, systems that were in place are no longer relevant. They are essentially inferior to Christ, who was the uh, ultimate plan of God. And so as we pick up here, I want us to look at verse 1 and verse 7 here uh, to see how Paul begins and ends this section. And so Paul begins this section uh, in verse 1. says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. And then in verse 7 it says, So 
you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. And so to uh, illustrate the temporary status of the law uh, as a sign of the covenant, Paul contrasts uh, essentially three terms here. He says, he introduces to us to, um, uh, to an heir, uh, introduces us to a child, and introduces us to a slave. And then in the beginning, and then he ends that section by introducing us to a slave, a son, and an heir. And then he essentially creates this image for us to follow uh, or to understand what he means uh, about the laws and the covenants being temporary. And so uh, when we look at what's, what's, what is Paul trying to communicate here as he's describing us or distinct, making these distinctions between a child and a son, between an heir and a slave. Um, so I think a child essentially, as he's using that term, uh, refers to an infant or a minor. And so uh, when you think about um, a child, um, you know, we think of somebody who is not mature enough to take responsibilities. So I think that's essentially what Paul is trying to capture here. Metaphorically, it could just mean, uh, also mean childish or untaught or unskilled. Uh, so as follows of the Mosaic law, Paul is comparing the Judaizers to immature children still needing to be guided in every way. They were God's people, but they were not sons who were mature enough to get an inheritance. So this is why God had to set up the, uh, the law. Coming out of Egypt, they were no longer slaves but they were essentially slaves to God because they had to be taught on what it means to follow God. Uh, because the time had not come yet, God had put these temporary measures in place so that they knew what it means to follow God. But the problem is what this relationship represents. Though they were God's people, they were expected to be obedient to the Mosaic laws and customs. They were like someone who lives for their master. They had no freedom, and there is no freedom in a master-slave situation. It's all about commands, obedience, performance, and then essentially an evaluation of those performance. So what's the difference between that and an heir, as Paul is uh, contrasting here? So an heir, in contrast, is a son uh, who's acquired or received his portion of the inheritance. So under Roman law, and this is essentially what Paul is alluding to here, uh, the maturity of the child was actually set by the father. It wasn't an age, uh, you know, in America we have 18, uh, but in, in the Roman culture, the date of maturity was set by the father. Now, it was a little bit earlier. I think uh, typically it tend to be around 14 or 15, but essentially it's an evaluation by the father of the son to see if he was mature enough to take on these additional responsibilities. And on that date set by the father, uh, there was a ceremony held, uh, and during the ceremony, uh, there was a, uh, essentially a garment that was given the child, and the garment was called a toga virilis. Um, and I'll tell you a little bit more about it. But essentially, this, this garment was given to this child at the ceremony, indicating that he has now uh, reached the age of maturity. But during the ceremony, a father had to acknowledge that his son now was an heir. Uh, they were given speeches of challenge to the youth. Uh, there were offerings made to the god. And the boy would stand in the center of the group and take off his garment that he wore and he would wear a new adult man's robe or a toga and this would be placed on him. And essentially this is what was called the toga virilis or the robe of a man. So at the time of the ceremony, the boy was given adult privileges and responsibilities. He could conduct business in his own name. Try that with a 14-year-old. Uh, could buy and sell property, could marry, could vote in the assembly, and in many other ways he could carry on as an adult citizen. Of course, he was not mature enough or wise enough to exercise all of these responsibilities, 
because he was not experienced enough yet, uh, but he was uh, encouraged to live up to these responsibilities. And the seriousness of his position as a citizen was impressed on him. And if he were intelligent and hardworking, he would grow up to be an adult having integrity and character. Uh, this is what the father was hoping for and looking forward to. So in the same way, Paul is reminding his readers that the mosaic system was temporary uh, and that it actually was only created to point and to anticipate the arrival of this Messiah. And when he did, and when the Messiah arrived, there would, no need, there would be no need for this temporary guardians that were put in place. The Messiah would elevate them from children to sons and therefore make them heirs to the inheritance that God had in store for them. I think as I was thinking about this passage, I think a good way to illustrate would be um, my kids, they're kind of in that age where they're starting to ride bikes and you know, it's, the, it's a fun activity for them. And so my, first, my son got his bike, um, I think it was for like four or so. Uh, <clears throat> he, um, um, it came with training wheels. And so because I was a mean dad, I didn't like training wheels. And so, and I knew like he would have more fun without those training wheels. Uh, but uh, his mom and he disagreed, and so we had this discussion, and so um, I would constantly tell him that big boys drove or rode their bikes without training wheels, and he was like, yeah, okay, but he was just getting a hang of the bike and riding, but, you know, I, I was, I have, I was set, my heart was set on him taking the, getting those training wheels off, and so, because I knew it would be more fun, uh, and I knew, knowing Ezra's personality, like this would be, he would enjoy it. But um, he protested, and you know, he cried, and there was lots of tears involved. But eventually, after a lot of candy bribes and a lot of protesting, he eventually got those wheels off, and uh, he started riding. The first few times were rough, fell down, crying, but you know, I helped him kind of get a hang of it. And in a few days, he was cruising the streets without training wheels. Uh, he was comfortable and he was ready to go. And then he's given us plenty of heart attacks since then uh, with his buying out in the streets. But uh, I remember thinking the, the kind of the turning point for him. He recognized that the freedom of not having the training wheels was greater than the comfort of having the training wheels. He recognized that he could go faster on two wheels than four wheels. You know, The training wheels were put in place to help essentially slow him down and kind of help him be comfortable, but it wasn't ideal. It wasn't ideal traveling condition. So uh, once he got that out, he's not looked back, but I'm on to my daughter now, which has been a little bit harder, but uh, we'll see how it goes. But that's essentially what I think about when I think about the Judaizers and how they think about the law and the role that it played now that Jesus had come. They did not want to let go of their temporary status as children. God was calling them to be sons, but they wanted to remain as children. They uh, want to follow Jesus, but also be tethered to this Mosaic covenant with its signs. They, they love Jesus. They wanted to follow him. But they were not willing to go all in. So in spite of the freedom they were given, they preferred to stay in the, the state of slavery. They did not want the additional freedoms, but neither did they want the additional responsibilities. They found comfort in the legalistic system instead of Christ. And the fact that the new people that were joining the church, following Jesus, the Gentiles, that think, seeing how they didn't have to follow these laws was threatening to them. And so this is what Paul is trying to uh, clarify for them. He's trying to teach them that children who remain as children and decide not to be sons are just the same as slaves. 
and for them to experience the inheritance that was said that God had for them, they had to move out of the state as children, their immaturity as children, and become sons. And so that's essentially how he opens this passage. But then Paul goes on to make, make another argument here that I want to kind of focus on for some of our time, and that is in verse 4. Let me read verse 4. Verse 4, he says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So that first part of verse 4 says, But God. That's my second part. Who was going to lead us? Who was going to help us become, move from being children to sons? This is where God intervenes. The but God uh, section here, or the phrasing here, marks the divine intervention that brought hope and freedom to mankind. As a human father chose the time for his child to become an adult son, so the heavenly father chose the time for the coming of Christ and to make a provision for people's transition from bondage under the law to spiritual sonship. So Paul uses the word, the fullness of time. So I want to see how, uh, how much y'all remember from, um, from my, I think I, when I uh, taught in Colossians in the summer, I believe it was July. I know it's been a lot of uh, Thanksgiving meal since then, but we talked about this idea of fullness there. I don't know if y'all remember. It talked about the fullness of deity resting in Christ. It was Colossians chapter two. We were talking about what it means for the fullness of deity to dwell in Christ. And I had given y'all the uh, Greek word that represents the word fullness. Do y'all remember what that is? No? No. Well, it's the word pleroma. Do you remember that? The word pleroma? Ring a bell? Yes? Okay, some of y'all are nodding. At least the youth are listening, so <laughs> let's. So the word, uh, Paul uses the same word here. He uses, there he used, uh, used to represent the fullness of Christ, the fullness of deity dwelling in Christ. Here he uses the word, the fullness of time. And he says, but when the fullness of time had come, Christ, Christ God sent his son for us. And so uh, Paul is saying when the uh, entirety of time, when God's ideal time had, a, had come and was fulfilled, God sent his son. God intervened. Now, there, we're not told exactly why the fullness of time had come. We just know that God knew that this was the time. Now, there are a lot of uh, reasons that people give. Uh, essentially, there are asp- cultural aspects that were important during this time. We read about the Roman, uh, the technology within the Romans, uh, developing the road system, the communication, the peace that existed that made it conducive for the gospel to spread. Uh, it may, may be that uh, we're not given, um, we're not told by Paul exactly why it was the fullness of time, but that's definitely a possibility and interesting factor to consider. Either way, the fullness of time should tell us that God, or in God's eyes, that this was the right time for him to send his son, for his son to be born. This was the time to fulfill the anticipated arrival of the Messiah. And then he goes on to say uh, that during this fullness of time, his son, uh, he sent his son. And so we look at, uh, let's look at kind of how he arrived. And so the rest of uh, verse four says, God sent forth the son, born of a woman, born under the law. So there are two things here I think that Paul is trying to point us to that I want us to focus on. And the first one here is that God sent forth his son. So you might be like, well, yeah, that's evident here. What's remarkable about that? It may seem unremarkable, but Paul is trying to put a pre-emphasis uh, on the pre-existence of the Son. God did not create the Son, but He sent the Son. 
And I think this is an important uh, aspect of uh, our understanding of Jesus and his nature. Uh, Christ did not have a starting point. He existed with the Father. He was not created. He is the eternal, always existent second person of the triune God. And he's always been that. He was not made. Instead, he stepped out of eternity and came willingly. The eternal Son was sent forth by the eternal Father. And this was God's way of showing his love for us, uh, his people, his children who were separated from him because of our own sin. And interestingly, uh, we just had a commissioning uh, prayer here. The word sent essentially gives that same concept. It's an idea of commissioning. God commissioned Jesus when when he sent him to earth. God was not sending his son away, but rather he was commissioning him to this uh, plan to make us into his sons. And the purpose, again, that Jesus came to, um, came to um, or was incarnated or came to us was so that we can become, move from slaves to sons. The, um, <clears throat> it's in- interesting as we think about uh, Christ's role and how he kind of came, um, you know, thinking about prior to Christ, God had sent a lot of different substitutes uh, in preparation for Christ. He had sent prophets. He had sent the temple. He had sent the tabernacle. He had sent um, kings and uh, priests. All of these were substitutes, however. And God was done s- sending substitutes, and he finally now decides to send his son during the full, in the fullness of time to accomplish his uh, purposes. So the first thing is that God sent his son, and it, his son was uh, not created. He was preexistent. But also, the second thing that Paul mentions here is that he was born of a woman. Now, why is that important? It's, again, an, um, uh, it's a common sense, right? If you were born on earth, then you were born of a woman. But I think, again, Paul is trying to emphasize a couple of pieces here. And that is that um, for Jesus to be our Savior, he had to not only be fully God, but he had to be fully human, This is what Paul is trying to demonstrate here by emphasizing his humanity. And this is essentially what Christians called incarnation. Incarnation simply means the act of being made flesh. Uh, Here it specifically refers to the Son of God who became human. And so since Jesus was born of a woman, he became a man. He's fully God, yet fully man. Now, it's a mystery of how this uh, exactly takes place, and, the theolo- and theologians call this the hypostatic union. So if you're wanting to dig more into it, um, you can look at that. But the specific call out that uh, he was born of a woman is very likely also to indicate his virgin birth. It would have been common sense for every human, again, like I mentioned, that every human to be born of a woman. But by specifying that Jesus was God's son, born of a woman, Paul is emphasizing the uniqueness of Jesus' birth, that he was fully God and fully human. I think this is an important uh, aspect for us to focus on as believers and to remember in this Advent season that for Jesus to be our Savior, he had to be both fully God and fully man. Now, again, there's very little uh, comparisons that we can think about. What is this like? There isn't anything like this. He is unique in that. Jesus is unique in that. And so it, it is a mystery to us of how it is, but it is the consistent biblical teaching and the historical teaching of the church that Christ was in perfect union by being fully God and fully man. He had to take on human nature for for him to be human, 
and he had to be fully God to redeem this human nature. We were just sang about this this morning uh, in Hark the Herald Angel Sings where Charles Wesley captures this uh, idea. He says, wailed in flesh the Godhead see, hailed incarnate deity, pleased as man with men, with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Wailed, God wailed himself in flesh. He came on the scene largely undetected by the world and he went about doing the Father's will. Since humanity was broken and separated from God, it had to either be destroyed or redeemed because it was creating havoc in God's world. And so we see the destruction uh, theme in, in, in the flood of Noah, but God here decides to send his son to recreate the world in his image. Recreated so we could have fellowship with God again. A spirit was dead, essentially separated from God. It was sick and in need of a physician, which means we loved sin even though it was killing us. Following our natural desires was causing us to be poisoned and experience a slow death. But we didn't see a way out, and so we kept walking away from God till Jesus came to redeem it. He took on this broken human nature with all of its problems and limitations. He experienced all the sufferings that we would experience. He experienced the temptations that we would. But he took it on and he redeemed it so we could be in fellowship with God again. We were following in the ways of Adam, our first father, relying on our own wisdom like Adam did, uh, rejecting God's wisdom and listening to the serpent's wisdom. And all humanity has followed in Adam's footsteps. And so it seemed like all hope was lost as we got closer to the, the birth of Jesus. Prophets and temples and sacrifices were all available as temporary guardrails and guardians, but they were not lasting and sufficient. We needed an overhaul, a new creation. And Jesus was that new creation. He cre recreates us in his image. He gives us the option to experience new birth. And so what does Paul say on how Jesus accomplishes that? Well, we look at two ways that uh, Paul uh, says here, um, and we read that in um, verse 5 of chapter 4. He says, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So Jesus accomplishes this redemption, uh, or sorry, this salvation through redemption and adoption. That's my third point this morning, that Jesus redeems and adopts us. So we enter God's family through redemption, and we enjoy God's family by adoption. Let me repeat that. We, in, we enter God's family through redemption, but we enjoy God's family through adoption. And so what do, what do these terms mean? Just a quick um, summary of what Paul is trying to get at. So redemption, by redemption, what we mean is Jesus redeemed us, which literally just means to purchase. He paid a ransom to purchase us. This term is often used by, um, uh, by the Romans to refer to ransoming a servant or a slave so as to give him his freedom. So Jesus gave his life as a ransom for all of us who were slaves under the law. And so Jesus was born under the law, as he says in verse 4, to redeem those of us who are under the law. And he fulfilled the law for all of those who tried but could not. 
and actually includes all of those who are not under the law, which is essentially one of the big themes in Galatians, where the, uh, the Gentiles who were not aware of the law also got to experience this redemption. And in spite of having all of our same weaknesses and temptations, Jesus did not sin. He was sinless, but rather he overcame sin and fulfilled all the requirements of the law and paid the full price that was required to redeem us from the chokehold of sin. And by doing that, he redeems us. That's the first big theme that Paul has, that he mentions here when he talks about the redemption of what Christ uh, coming did for us. Second is the, this theme of adoption that we see that Paul talks about here. Now, it's one of those adoptions, one of the metaphors that appears uh, in multiple places in Scripture. But essentially, it's the idea or that the Bible uses to explain how we as Christians are brought into God's family. He changes our legal status from slaves to sons. He gives us an inheritance for us to participate in. He, we are brought into the family. Now, there's so much to say about adoption, uh, um, more than I'm able to cover this morning, but let me just leave you with a few thoughts that I think are relevant here. When the New Testament uses the word adoption, it actually means to place an adult son, to place as an adult son. And so to adopt someone is to make someone, a person, a legal son or a daughter. And so we have to remember, Paul is writing to a Roman, uh, kind of in a Roman culture under the Roman Empire. Where, uh, and so as, he, uh, as he's giving this idea of ideas of adoption, I think it's good for us to think about how do the Romans see adoption? Um, um, in the Roman culture, it was a very significant and common practice. And so today, um, like, or unlike today, where we could just write a will to who we wanted to leave our wealth to, unlike that, in, in, uh, in the Roman world, uh, um, with very few exceptions, the man had to pass his wealth onto his son or sons. Um, and if the man had no sons, or if he felt like his sons were incapable of managing his inheritance, he had to find a worthy son, or he had to adopt someone who would be, make a worthy son. And the adopted son would have the same rights and privileges as a natural-born son. And the law also obviously granted the father responsibility and full authority of the adopted son. Um, and essentially the father cared and uh, was responsible for this son. Essentially that's the image that Paul is wanting us to bring in as we think about this uh, image of Jesus adopting us or Jesus executing our adoption on behalf of God. And so also, I think similar to, unlike our modern-day adoptions where oftentimes adoptions happen with infants or toddlers, the Roman adoptions were for oftentimes older boys or even adult men. Uh, and the, the, um, because primarily they were fulfilling a role about caring or undertaking or being responsible for things, for an inheritance, for wealth or for land, and so oftentimes it was, they were older. So when the adoption was legally approved, the adoptee would have all his debts canceled and he would receive a new name. He would be the legal son of his adoptive father and entitled to all the rights and benefits of the son. And so I think uh, some of you may be familiar with the character of Ben-Hur. Have you all seen that movie? No? Okay, it's, I think it's an older movie, but... Um, Ben-Hur was a Jewish uh, man who, um, his name was Judah Ben-Hur. Uh, he was imprisoned on a Roman galley ship as a rower. And uh, in battle, the, sink, uh, the ship is sinking, and Judah escapes and saves the life of a Roman commander named Arius. 
However, Arius' only son dies in battle, uh, and um, Arius ultimately adopts Judah Ben-Hur as his son. And he's pardoned for his crimes and is freed. He's also given a new name called Young Arius, and he has all the rights of inheritance. And in the scene of the adoption, which um, uh, I think it's fascinating to see, the adoption is announced, Arius takes off his ancestral ring, uh, signet ring that was given to him by his grandfather and gives it to young Arius, whose name is now in young Arius. And a, a young Arius says that he has received a new life, a new home, and a new father. And I think this is essentially what Paul is wanting us to uh, image to have in mind as we think about what Jesus did for us in his incarnation. In Galatians 4, verses 3 to 7, towards the end of that, uh, Paul says that Jesus buys us out of slavery and that we are adopted by the Father and given the Spirit, so now we, as believers, are heirs. When we come to faith in Christ and come to Jesus and celebrate Him and call Him our Lord, our debts are canceled. We're given a new name and we're given all the rights and that heirs of God possess. Amen? One difference, uh, though, from a Roman adoption, obviously, is that we're not adopted because God thinks we're worthy, but rather it's God adopts people who are completely unworthy, and he adopts us on the basis of graves. And so everyone that puts our faith in Jesus as the Savior is adopted into God's family as heirs. But we all know just because we are legally adopted, we can probably not feel like we're part of a family. And we've all been there where our internal state of mind does not match our external state. Now, whether it's in a new job, uh, you know, new season of life, etc. Oftentimes, you know, we, we may have an imposter syndrome. I don't know if y'all have heard that word. Essentially, that's thinking, you, you feel like you don't fit in. You're in the wrong place. And so it brings me to the last point that Paul essentially is talking about here, and that is that we have to live out our adoption. What do we do with this truth that we have been redeemed and adopted? Well, we have to live it out. We have to live out our adoption. Now, there's a difference here and a subtle difference that Paul is making here uh, between what the Son does and what the Spirit does. So the end of uh, in verse 6 where Paul says, so this is what the Spirit does in us, uh, I think a, a pastor named Tim Keller puts it really beautifully that I want to read this quote from him. It says, the work of the Son brings us an objective legal condition that is ours whether we feel it or not. But the work of the Spirit is not like that at all. The Spirit brings us a radically subjective experience. The work of the Son is done externally to us and is something we can have without feeling. But the work of the Spirit is done internally to us and consists in us being completely moved emotionally as well as intellectually by the love of the Father. Now, if you caught all that, but essentially what he, Tim uh, Keller is saying is the work of the Son gives us a legal standing before God, but the Spirit essentially allows us to live out our adoption. He intercedes for us. He changes us. He sanctifies us. So God has given us the Spirit during our adoption so that we can now live in relationship to Him and that we can live, in, uh, live as sons with God. Paul in other places uses this language of the completion of our adoption in Ephesians and in other places and where he says that the, our adoption is complete when our bodies are completely transformed um, at, at the second coming. 
But now, what do we do with it now? But we, in now we live with this truth and meditate on it, allowing the Spirit to change us and to experience God's love as our Father. So as the band comes up, I want us just kind of some practical ways to, for us to live out this truth um, of our adoption this Advent season. I think, like I mentioned, there's a lot of resources that are available where um, I would encourage you to think about, or whether it's a devotional or a passage, think about a passage that you can either meditate on or read with, by yourself or with your family. One that I find helpful to read um, uh, my own time is John 1, where it says in the beginning was the Word and the Word is with God. So John 1, 1 through 14 is a great passage to remind ourselves of what God has done for us what God, Jesus accomplished by coming as a baby. And second, pray for the Spirit, or along with the Spirit, to help you recognize and experience God's love. Again, I don't, I think this, uh, our relationship with God is something that's meant to be exper- experiential, not just something that's intellectual. And this is what I think Paul tells us here at the end of uh, or sorry, uh, the, the passage we looked at about the Spirit groaning with us. It cries out on our behalf. So find a passage to meditate on or to read, pray, uh, and ask the Spirit to um, help you recognize God's love and experience it this Advent season. And then third, proclaim it to others. I think it's adoptions often involve huge announcements and celebrations. Are there people in your own life that need to hear the news of this adoption? Maybe that's whether you're um, taking them out to coffee or lunch and telling them about this or inviting them to church as we get ready for Christmas. People tend to be more open to visiting um, church during Christmas time, and so it's a great time to tell them about this, the, the truth and the joy of this adoption. And lastly, I think it would be um, it's important for us to show God's love to one another. And I think it's sometimes we think the, um, our love or affection or attention needs to be focused outside the church and that's important. I think we're sitting with brothers and sisters that have been adopted into the family. What does it look like to love one another and care for one another during this season of Advent? Just kind of going beyond our own uh, shopping lists and family traditions, etc. What does it look like for us to celebrate and love one another this Advent season. That's what I want to leave you all with. Um, Remind yourself of this undeniable truth of being adopted into God's family, being redeemed because Christ came or was incarnated where he put on flesh and came to live a sinless life, die for us on the cross, that we may be reconciled to God, that we may move from children to sons. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this truth and for the gift of Christmas where your son was incarnated, where he put on human flesh so that he could come be with us, not to just send help, but to come be with us and to be present with us as we walk and learn and meditate on this reconciliation that we've experienced. Pray that you would give us grace to not rely on inferior substitutes to Christ. That we may give up those and that we might keep our eyes focused on you. That our hearts may be filled with hope 
as we walk this Advent season. Pray that you would give us abundance of, of grace to experience your love, to show your love to not only our neighbors but also our fellow believers. Will this be a time of joy and hope and love in our homes and in our churches and in our lives? We pray for your mercies. We pray for your grace. We love you, Jesus. Help us live in your love for us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, this is Pastor Shannon, and I want to thank you for tuning in today. I trust that the Lord has spoken to you through his word. And if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I invite you to trust him today. If you have questions about what that means, reach out to us through our website, RedeemerRC.com, and one of our pastors will be in touch. In addition, if you would like to partner with Redeemer in her mission to share, shape, and send, you can support our ministry by visiting RedeemerRC.com forward slash give. Now, this podcast is not intended to replace your active participation in the life of a local church, but tune in next week as we continue to lift high the name of Jesus through every paragraph, passage, and page of the Bible.